0: Um, we then move directly into the research directions. Um, just if I may take it, in case I don't get the chance at the end, um, and to say to all of those of you convening the research direction seminars, um, I have been asked by a number of people, including Rob Cuthbert, editor of um, SRHE News, If the conveners, we don't expect you could do it, but if you could find a friendly face in the audience and get someone just to record the key issues and hand that to Francois before you depart, we would find that very useful because a lot of people asked us last year if they could have some feedback from the sessions they weren't able to attend. So without um, any further ado, uh, Jill Jamieson is going to introduce our keynote, our final keynote to you. Thank you, Jill.
1: Hello everybody, Uh, good to see you this morning, coming to the end of what for me has been a very interesting and uh, successful conference, personally I felt, but also to see so many people and to have a talk with uh, lots of people about their ongoing research and practice. Now it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce Uh, for the vice presidential address which we don't always have. We've not always had one but we thought this year it was an excellent opportunity to invite Professor Roger Brown to come and talk to us and he's talking to us about politics and policy making in higher education. Now I was having a chat with Roger earlier and he kind of pointed out to me that he's been a rebel since the age of two. He kind of started early in terms of actually recognizing the flaws in people's argument. He'll, he can correct you on this story. I'm not sure whether it'll be now or afterwards, but um, when he was two years old apparently, there was somebody who claimed uh, that the garden was perfectly weeded. It had been beautifully done, and I think it was the next-door neighbor or something, kind of said, this is a beautiful garden, it's all been done. Now at the age of two, he kind of looked down and noticed coming up very prominently through the Cracks in, in the um, in the what is it the, the paving stones or something um, that uh, there were two very prominent weeds there. Roger has been pointing out the weeds ever since, and we are delighted that he has been doing so because he's occupied a rare space and an important space in terms of policy and higher education. If I could just remind you that he's co-director of the Centre for Higher Education Research Development at Liverpool Hope University. He is also a visiting professor in education at the University of East London, at Napier University Edinburgh and the University of Southampton. He is also an honorary visiting fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies in Education at London Metropolitan University and at the Oxford Centre for Higher Education Studies. He was formerly, as I'm sure you are aware, Vice-Chancellor of Southampton Solent University and he has had an extensive engagement in higher education, including as Chief Executive of the Higher Education Quality Council. Particularly, one of Roger's strengths is the understanding that he has of government in terms of the various posts that he's had previously in central and local government. So, to occupy the space that he has found in terms of being not only a critic but a rebel since the age of two, we are delighted to welcome him to talk to us. Thank you,
2: Roger. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Jill, and thanks to you and to Helen for giving me this opportunity to talk to the conference, and also for the help you've each given me with what I propose to say. Um, I do only have half an hour, probably a little bit less than that. I'm going to cover quite a lot of ground, so it will be a fairly rapid uh, tour through, um, but there will be text available, and I'll be very happy to, to answer questions and, and, and deal with any queries that I can. Uh, I always like to start with one or two quotes, so... Um, This is is, um, uh, Sir Peter Cook's uh, wonderful character, Sir Arthur Streep Greebling, who had tried and failed for many years to teach ravens to fly underwater. And this was his famous comment, I've learnt from my mistakes and I'm sure I can repeat them. If you associate that phrase with British higher education policy, then you've probably got the the point, really. Okay, Um, and the second is a slightly more inward-looking quote, the Academy has the unfortunate tendency to apply scientific standards over to every field of study except itself. And I fear, again, that may be somewhat, um, somewhat reminiscent. Um, and they are quite amusing comments. But my next uh, slide is a little bit more serious. And it comes from Shakespeare, of course. Um, I won't read it out. You can read it for yourselves. And I'm afraid that, that is going to be very much the tenor of my, my remarks. I really want to do, in the limited time, uh, three things. Um, uh, this is the, uh, the next slide. I want to have a very brief review of the policies that have been followed for UK higher education over the past 30 years, which is also the subject of my new book in the SRHE series, and I think you've been given a copy of the flyer for it, being published in, in February. I want to offer some thoughts about the policy process that's produced those policies. And then finally, I want to offer towards the end some thoughts about how we might manage to improve things. I'm not going to say a huge amount about the policies, if only because we've had a fair run over them already. We had uh, Howard Hodgson's keynote. Uh, we had the symposium just now, and there have been other, quite a number of other papers that have dealt with policy of one kind or another. Um, but the key point is that my way of reading it is that we have moved steadily but surely in the direction of a market-based system, beginning with the uh, removal of the subsidy for overseas students fees in 1980 and culminating for the time being with the introduction of a voucher system for funding university teaching in 2012. And we have now got the essentials of a market-based system, and the next slide just simply reminds you of what the key elements of that market-based system actually are. And I think you will recognize that. It's a description of, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, systems in America, in Australia New Zealand, and now the UK, and in one or two other countries as well. That is what a market-based system actually looks like. Um, And that is where we are definitely heading. Although, of course, in important respects, we're not there yet, and we may never be. Some people think we will never get to that point. Although, interestingly, this week's time's higher. Paul Ramsden actually seems to be arguing for both the removal of limits on fees and the removal of limits on places, that undoubtedly would create a genuine kind of system. That's really as much as I want to say about the character of the policies. Um, In the work that I've done, both for my 2010 edited book and now for my new book purely about the UK, I've provided an overall summary of what the impact of of these policies actually has been. And I think there's little doubt that they have improved efficiency um, and responsiveness on the part of institutions. But they've also, in my view, uh, and on the basis of what I've been able to discover, uh, reduced institutional diversity, increased institutional stratification, damaged social mobility, and undermined quality by commodifying education and reconstructing students as consumers. And the evidence for that is set out in my book. But the key point and the most important point, the most important damage that these policies will do to higher education is that they will effectively destroy the implicit contract between higher education and society, whereby higher education has a certain degree of autonomy in return for providing certain valued, broader public goods. Now, there are just a couple of other points I want to make about these policies before passing on. I want, first of all, to comment on the irony of the fact that if there is a rationale for these policies or if there was a rationale for these policies, it was in terms of improving value for money. And I think there's little doubt that the introduction of research selectivity and more recently a student contribution to the cost of tuition has undoubtedly increased value for money. But of course, taken too far, and undoubtedly they have, in my view, been taken too far, they actually lead to poorer value value for money and, and waste. And I invite you to think about all the effort put into the RAEs and the REF, uh, the effort which went into some aspects of teaching quality assessment, a lot of the activity around institutional review, the Centers for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, the National Student Survey, the key information set, all of these ultimately represent a, a very poor value, poor value for money. The other point I want to make about these policies is, is that to some extent they were adopted as a device to take us away from the real issue, which is the level of public investment in higher education. They have, in fact, been a diversionary device, whereby certain institutions have gained and certain have not. And it's basically been an effort to divert us away from that basic investment point. That's all I want to say about the policies. You can read about them, or you will be able to read about them much more fully in my book, where the evidence for my assertions is set out, I hope, in a reasonably clear way. I'd like now come to the second aspect, which is the, the policy process. Now, as a, as a sometime historian, I'm naturally suspicious of general grand theories. Uh, the ideal English historian was someone called Sir Louis Namier, very typically um, an Austrian uh, uh, immigrant, uh, who began his history of the Parliament of George III, which of course the reign lasted 1760 to 1820. And he got to 1763 by the end of, the, by the end of his work. And that's, that's the ideal English historian, if you like. So I'm naturally quite sceptical of, of general theories. But I do believe that the policies that are being pursued in higher education and in other fields, as, as Peter um, Taylor-Gooby has pointed out, are common. And there is, an, I think, an ideological core to them. Um, And I think it's ideology which is driving, and not simply the economic crisis, which is driving policies not just in higher education, of course, but certainly in the schools and in other areas as well. Coming more specifically to the policy process, this has happened at a time when the checks on governments and the checks on ministers in particular have weakened. I worked in Whitehall for 14 years in a variety of departments, including the Cabinet Secretariat. And there was no doubt at all that civil servants did act as some kind of balance uh, to, to ministers, particularly in areas which were not hot political kind of areas. But I'm afraid that increased managerialism has meant that much of the time of senior civil servants is spent on quite spurious management exercises that really have very little to do with the effectiveness of public services. Also there's been a diffusion of roles. When I was a civil servant, civil servants were clearly the main advisers to ministers. Now they often don't even get house room uh, and, and they, are, they are marginalized. And finally, there has been, there has developed what in the trade is known as responsiveness, which in this case means that civil servants who actually are prepared to speak up and say that they don't think the policy is a particularly good idea, are marginalized in favor of can-do merchants who will do what ministers want and then move on very quickly often to the private sector before the, before the balloon goes up. Now, these phenomena were not unknown in my day in Whitehall, but they have become exacerbated as a result of the policies that have taken place. And I think the policy process itself is much less effective as a result of these disappearing uh, checks and balances. So what is to be done? Well, um, I've set out here what I call an action program, if you like. On the negative side, and we've heard this at this conference, I think it would help if the sector simply stood up for itself more and i'm afraid in political terms that really does mean the leaders of our institutions a number of people have commented on the feeble opposition to the present government policies on the part of the vice chancellors drawing unfavorable contrasts with the leaders of the nhs and even god help us the service chiefs and, and the fact that obviously the fact that the vice chancellors are themselves quite divided in terms of institutional loyalties doesn't help but there is simply no excuse for the following statement. This is um, part of Universes UK's response to the technical consultation document so-called about the new regulatory framework. We welcome the proposed role for the Higher Education Funding Council for England as a lead regulator and a commitment that HEFSI will, will is now continue to operate at arm's length from government. And there's another uh, quote similarly, which I, which I haven't got on the slide, about Raising, raising questions about the government's decision to revise the rules for degree awarding powers and university title. I invite you to read the response for yourselves. Now, remember that I worked for government for 14 years and have had a lot to do with it otherwise. Is Hefke actually an arm's length agency, at least on the issues that count? Have the vice chancellors really forgotten all those battles over contractual funding, the abolition of tenure? academic freedom, performance indicators, etc., that took place in the 80s and 90s? Or have their memories, like their archives, gone to Warwick? <laughs> if, if so, then they need to recall the activities of the same funding council in the mid-2000s, when on behalf of the then chancellor, peaked at Cambridge's misuse of a grant he had personally given them and MIT to promote technology transfer in the works of Shakespeare, aspects of which were criticised by the National Audit Office. He sought to reform the governance of Oxford and Cambridge and was only stopped by the opposition of rank and file academics. University governance, I'm afraid, is another area where market-based policies are increasingly being introduced with very mixed, mixed results. But we also need to distance ourselves from commercial interests. Here is a former chair of Universities UK, Professor Rick Trainer quoted in the Times Higher Education when it was reported that his then current institution, King's College London, had risen 22 places in the 2007 Times World University rankings. No doubt he was caught on the wing, as they say. Now how can we blame students for being attracted by employment and earnings data? if our leaders so obviously seek recognition and status of themselves and their institutions. Similarly, on in commenting on Exeter's decision to leave the 1994 group, another former UUK chair, Sir Steve Smith, is reported to have said that the sector was changing and the AAB thing had, had changed the debate. He added that Durham and ourselves were up there and then York was a little bit lower, but not much. These are the positional values that are now driving the leaders of our sector. In 2006, I wrote an article called League Tables, Do We Have to Live With Them? for the AUA Journal Perspectives. And I set out what have become the standard scholarly arguments about the validity, et cetera, of such such instruments. But my main argument, and I haven't seen it widely deployed, is that we as universities, and especially university leaders, as effectively the voice of higher education, should actually have anything to do with them at all. surely they are anathema to all the scientific criteria that are our our stock in trade and our unique contribution to society and just to quote from myself in the next slide and I think this is what is at stake uh, with the league tables, it really is um, that famous quote of Bill Shankly's about football not being a matter of life and death but more important than that so what can we do, well My modest suggestion is that a good start would be to improve the evidence base. And I quote here from quite an interesting publication called Making Policy Better, Improving Whitehall's Core Business, 2011, which set out some precepts for uh, effective policy making. And this is something called the Institute for Government. Um, It's mainly uh, people who are experts in the policy process. And these are questions about what you might see as being effective policy. And this is not a new or novel formulation. I can point to similar publications going back to 1999 and indeed before that. The current higher education minister, David Willits, has described the Brown Report as a paradigm-shifting publication, standing alongside the Robbins and Deering Report. In fact, of course, it's fairly easy to compare the quality of evidence, et cetera, available to Brown with those two earlier committees. We know that the Brown Committee commissioned one single survey of student opinion, costing £68,000. Even to get that required a a Freedom of Information uh, request. This survey, by the way, showed very clear opposition to variable fees. It's not clear what account the Brown Committee took of it. Uh, Perhaps the fact that the committee included two senior vice chancellors one of whom had been Chief Executive of the Funding Council, reassured them that they had all the knowledge they needed of higher education for their purposes. When the Brown report came out, one of the things that I said about it was that it was a sort of report that could have been written on the back of a menu card in the Institute of Directors. About a week later, someone who knew what they were talking about said that Lord Brown would never be seen and dead in the Institute of Directors. It wasn't posh enough for him. So that is, what, that is what you are up against. Well, with my experience of policymaking, of course I'm not as so naive as to believe that having better information and evidence would in itself improve the quality of policymaking. Nevertheless, I think the Brown report is in its own way a locus classicus. No evidence was produced in, in support of its conclusions. There was very little actual argument. There wasn't even that beloved mantra of policymaker's there wasn't even a risk analysis. Uh, so, so it is, I think it will stand, uh, as they say, uh, on its own. But I still think that getting better evidence, asking better questions, conducting better inquiries would be a good place for us to start. And certainly it's where we as higher education should start. And I would like to see it one where the SRHE, as the Learning Society for Higher Education, including higher education policy, could give a lead. Now I don't have time because I'm running running out of time to actually set out what will be fully required. But I think there is a, I think there is a basic problem about higher education research and I think it's something we ought to address. So what is required in terms of policy related research? Well, this is set out on this on this slide. I think first of all we have to have relevant research based evidence and there are so many aspects of higher education policy where we don't really have much in the way of worthwhile evidence, and quality assurance as an example. Hands up anyone who's got any evidence who shows that the effort we've put into quality assurance since the early 90s has actually led to better quality. Hands up, well, I could go on. There are so many areas where we just don't know enough in an evidential sense about the effectiveness of the policy. Dialogue with relevant partners. We can't do it on our own. We have to talk to funding bodies. We have to talk to other interest groups obviously talk to department what we need in my view is a program of longer-term policy related research which has proper underpinnings academic underpinnings and which reflects interests other than those of the funder or the researcher some of you may remember that in the early 80s there was a Leverhulme study which produced some very valuable work. Indeed, I sometimes refer to it myself when I go back, and that's now 30 years old, 30 years out of date. We badly need something like a Leverhulme inquiry, which is disinterested and academically focused and based to guide what we do. But then also, the other big problem is is getting the, the findings, the conclusions, the evidence into the hands and into the minds of policymakers, which is not something which the academic community is always very good about, And then finally, what is also missing is a repository of knowledge about policies and policy impacts. The government in the white paper, 2011, having talked about wanting to have more private providers, wanting to have more higher education and further education, it then about six months later decided to commission a research study to find out about those topics. That simply is not good enough in a modern, uh, developed uh, society. So where do we go from here? Well, uh, I hope I've convinced you that... In spite of some benefits, the market-based policies have been pursued by successive British governments since the 1970s, which have now been accelerated for the time being by the so-called coalition government, will be, I think, negative, not only for the liberal view of higher education, whatever that is, which I think most people still, still espouse, but even more particularly for the public goods provided by higher education. But I think they also threaten the whole issue of the future role of universities within society. However, I also believe, putting on a sort of slightly more optimistic uh, hat, if you like, that it is possible to change those policies. And that one of the keys is ourselves, not only to produce that information and evidence, but actually ourselves to use it, something which we're not always good at doing. I think that as the academy, we have both the duty and the capacity to do this, And I hope very much that this is a lead that the society will feel able to take in future. Thank you very much for listening to me.
1: Thank you very much, Roger, for uh, an excellent contribution in terms of what I think has been a conference which has problematised where we are going and where we are in terms of higher education, has raised some extraordinarily important debates, not only about the identity of higher education itself and the research that we are doing within it and on it, but also really um, some of the futures that we may envisage that we have conflicting ideas about, we have sometimes complementary ideas about, the debates that we have heard in this week. I have been uh, really honoured to have been part of and to have been able to chair some of these sessions, and I wanted to thank you very much for that. I wanted to thank Roger for an excellent speech. If we could just acknowledge that. And within that recognition, uh, we are recognizing not only a problem, but also an opportunity. Roger has um, advised us and suggested to us that there may be an opportunity for the Society for Research into Higher Education to consider longer-term policy-related research, which has, as he said, Uh, proper theoretical and conceptual underpinnings. I think that there is a space for that and I think it's very important. Now, in winding up the conference, I'm going to hand over in just a moment to Helen, Um, but I wanted to say thank you very much indeed to Helen and to the SRHE team for the excellent work that has been done in organizing this conference. I think it's been outstanding from the very start, really, in terms of the effort that has been put in and the amount of trouble that the SRHE team has gone to. So can I ask you to give them a resounding thanks?
0: Don't worry, I'm not going to say anything. I just want to share a couple of last little bits with you. I'm not, not a marketing person, but I thought I'd have a go. Anyway, I will say a couple of words just whilst this runs through. Um, thank you very much, and thank you all very much for the participation in the conference. As I said at the very beginning, uh, without you we don't have any conference, and it's just been fantastic. I wish I'd met every single one of you. Uh, we're not finished, however. Uh, we're going to move on now into the research directions. Um, these will be very much your forums, um, and in each, se- in each session, uh, please do choose the one that most appeals to your own area of interest. There will be a small amount of, sort of setting of the scene that will be very much over to yourselves. And as you'll see, I've said, after today, don't forget come to the SRAT conferences in 2013, and there are the dates, oops, I'll go back to the dates, Um, for the new researchers conference, and for the main conference from the 11th to the 13th, and also keep in touch. Thank you very much.